Well, today we are starting our series, Christmas Unwrapped, which is going to run through the season of Advent. Uh, these are the weeks that lead up to Christmas. And during the season of Advent, it's kind of like for the church, it's our chance, in a way, um, to, to be Old Testament, because we're going through the prophecies of a Savior that's going to come. We anticipate that he's going to be born. And so we're, we're kind of like the Old Testament people who are just waiting for the Messiah to come. And then, of course, on Christmas, we, we ultimately just really, really celebrate. And so all throughout this month, you're going to see us progressing closer and closer uh, to the birth of our Savior, Jesus Christ, and what that story means for us in life now. And so Christmas Unwrapped uh, is special to that. Now, this past Friday, Pastor Chuck was absolutely right. Jingle Jam was amazing. Uh, Hannah, our new children's director, who's been here uh, just about a year, that was absolutely unbelievable. Your volunteers were unbelievable. Uh, Holiday Han Hannah and Jingle Jill and Christmas Chuck, who was shooting, uh, I guess, tennis balls or something out into the crowd. The whole thing was crazy. Thank you, volunteers, and everybody that made that happen. Let's give them a hand. That was so special, and I want to give you an invitation. Uh, we, we do two other midweek services as well uh, during this season of December, and they begin this Wednesday, and then the Wednesday after, they are actually led by our school children here at Messiah Lutheran School. So both our elementary kids as well as our preschool kids, and so it's an invitation to you on Wednesday nights. Come and join us and be a part of that. Uh, you don't have to be a school parent. I promise you it's going to just bring a big smile uh, to your face, and you can celebrate and honor them. And then, of course, there's uh, refreshments and snacks afterwards. Uh, that's all amazing. And then just throughout the season, showing up on Sundays, making sure that, that you're preparing your heart for Christmas, preparing your faith for Christmas. That's really important. In my family, I grew up in a traditional Lutheran church and a traditional Lutheran home. And we, we had many traditions that we did. Some of you might have had these same traditions, like uh, reading a daily Advent devotional with uh, different readings that are there and maybe some reflections on that. Or maybe you had an advent calendar in your home. When I grew up, we had an advent calendar, and then each day, my sister and I, we would switch who gets to place the, uh, the next thing in the story, and so there'd be a picture of the nativity, and maybe on December 1st, you just, you just get to place a camel. By December 19th or something, maybe the Mother Mary gets to go up there. And of course, everybody wanted to fight over who gets to put the baby Jesus up on Christmas day. Uh, we, we have Advent calendars in our home now that we do with our kids. Uh, the ones we have are, are, are made by like uh, Lent chocolate. <laughs> and so when you open each one, it's not so much a Christmas devotional, but whoever got to open that one gets a piece of chocolate. I, I'm not sure that's the point, but, but we do that in our home. We want to we mark the season. So maybe you've had some of these traditions. Or when I grew up, we actually had an Advent wreath uh, in our home. And it had four candles in it. And each of the candles sim, uh, stood for a word. Uh, the words of Advent or the words of Christmas. Hope, peace, joy, and love. And then finally on Christmas Day, you would light the candle that was in the center, symbolized kind of like a Christ candle that you might see in a traditional church. But, but uh, once, once a week, you would light an additional candle for those different words, hope, peace, joy, and love, until finally the entire wreath was lighted up and you knew it was time for Christmas. And here's the thing with hope, and that's what we're talking about today. Hope is not the same thing as wishing. Like, you can wish for a better job. 
You, you can wish for winning numbers on your lottery ticket. You can wish for things to happen. Hope is actually grounded in truth. Hope is grounded for the Christian in the promises of God. We're not just wishful thinking. We're putting our hope in someone that we can trust, in the word of God, in the promises of God, and ultimately in the prophecies of people like Isaiah, and that's who we're talking about today. We're, we're going to go to the prophet Isaiah, because he's got a lot to say about Christmas. I like to say that Isaiah is the first gospel. Yes, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that talk about Jesus and, and the life of Jesus. But Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, was talking about Jesus and Jesus coming and what Jesus would do. He, he mentions the birth. He mentions the crucifixion. Isaiah's got all of this 700 years before Jesus even came. And here's the real question about hope that, that I hope we answer throughout this series and especially today. It's this. How can you have hope even when it feels like you're losing? How can you have hope even when today you're really struggling? Or in the foreseeable future, you're a little worried. How can you have hope even then? And Isaiah, the prophet, knows a lot about this because during his time when he has his ministry to be a prophet where he's supposed to speak on God's behalf before the people, he knows a lot of times people aren't listening. In fact, Isaiah reigned for over 40 years. He reigned during the the, during, he was teaching during the reign of four different kings, Uzziah and Jotham and King Ahaz and King Hezekiah, which is really pretty rare for a prophet to be in ministry for more than 40 years because a lot of times you're coming and you're speaking hard words to people of power. You're, you're confronting people who have a lot of power. And so a lot of times when you do that, um, they, they want to take you out. <laughs> They don't like it when you challenge them. They don't like it when you criticize them. It doesn't matter if it's on God's behalf. People in power don't like to take no for an answer. But that's exactly why Isaiah is there. So he's a career prophet. He's been doing this for more than 40 years. And that kind of gives us a historical context of why Isaiah the prophet is so important in the Old Testament. In fact, his wife, his wife was called a prophetess. A prophetess. So maybe uh, she was also a prophet. We know there were, there were female prophets in the Old Testament. Prophets like Deborah, she was a prophet. And, and Huldah, she was a prophet. It, it's also possible that it's, it's kind of like a title, like, like Mrs. Prophet or Wife of the Prophet. We, we don't know for sure. But I want to go to a very common passage that we read during the season of Advent or during Christmas. Isaiah chapter 7. And my guess is you'll recognize the last verse because we talk about it a lot around this time because it's very specific to the birth of Christ. But it's also very possible that, that not many of you or, or maybe none of you even know the context with why that was being said. And so Isaiah 7, the, the full chapter gives us the context. I'm going to read some of the verses. When Ahaz, son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah was king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram and Pekah, 
son of Remaliah, king of Israel, marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it. Now the house of David was told, Aram has allied itself with Ephraim. So the hearts of King Ahaz and his people were shaken as the trees of the forest are shaken by the wind. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, I will not put the Lord to the test. And then Isaiah said, hear now, you house of David, is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Now, we're, we're going to continue in the book of Isaiah in just a little bit, but to this point, uh, that's God's word for us. The, the historical context, the background, was that Syria and Israel, the northern kingdom, had formed a coalition. And they were trying to repel a much bigger bully called Assyria. We talked about Assyria last week. But because Judah, who was ruled by King Ahaz at the time, refused to join the coalition, they threatened Judah. But God had sent the prophet Isaiah to calm Ahaz down and offered Ahaz, hey, ask God for any sign you want, any sign, so that you can authenticate the prophecy that I'm giving you. I want you to be sure that what I'm saying is, is true. And so God says, just ask for a sign, whatever it is. God's more than happy to give it to you. Make it as difficult as you want, Isaiah says. In fact, he says, as high as the heaven or as deep as the dead, God doesn't care. He's going to authenticate this. He's going to give you a sign. In other words, God wanted to see Ahaz. Uh, he wanted Ahaz to see his greatness, that he was for him, that he wanted to help him. He wanted Ahaz to trust him, that God would protect his nation. Uh, he wanted all of Israel to trust him, but, but specifically Ahaz. And he wanted him to trust him more than political treaties or military technology. That's why God specifically says, hey, don't bring any chariots or any of that. You don't, you don't need that. And by the way, God's been delivering victory after victory for them. So Ahaz, he has reason, logical reason to trust God uh, with his future. But instead, King Ahaz bribed Assyria instead of trusting God. He bribed Assyria. Basically, he was saying to himself, no thanks, I, I trust my own arrangement for security. But of course, he couldn't exactly say that to Isaiah face to face. So instead, he uses a pious excuse. He actually quotes Deuteronomy and uses a pious excuse to, to let Isaiah know why he's ignoring him. He says, you know, it says don't put the Lord thy God to the test. <laughs> to Ahaz, those were just words. See, that's why God was upset with him. That's why he sent the prophet Isaiah. I'm inviting you to ask me for a sign, but you don't want anything to do with me. You don't want anything to do with my promises, Ahaz. In Isaiah 7, God 
is making a better way, and the king is turning him down. He's introducing him to a bigger promise as well. That's why he says, and the virgin will give birth to a son. If you fast forward to chapter 9, he says the same thing again. He doubles down again. Isaiah prophesies, for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. Now why on his shoulders? Because rulers would sometimes wear a gold chain over their shoulders and it would show their authority. And so the son to be born will have authority. Ahaz, God wants to help you now and direct you now because he has an ultimate promise that's coming. So don't trust in yourself. Trust in the promises of God. And the key word in that passage is for to us. To us a son is given. Why is he doing this? He's doing this for you. I don't know for each of you like where your faith is today. What you're thinking today, what, what, or where your heart is today uh, in your faith. Advent is faith that God is for you and not against you. Even while you're struggling, even when things haven't quite worked out yet, it's hope that God's going to do something greater. It's anticipation that it's going to happen. Adventist faith that even though you might have sold God out like Judas or swindled people like Zacchaeus or, or for a while you were hiding from God like Adam and Eve were hiding from God in the garden or maybe you've had your inner demons exposed like Mary Magdalene. Advent is faith that God doesn't expect you to run back to him. It's faith that God is going to continue to run after you, wherever you've gone. Isaiah continues in chapter 9. He says, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, and he will reign on David's throne. And over his kingdom, from this time on, and forever. This is an eternal promise. Do you know what these words mean? They mean that you have to define Jesus as who he says he is. For Isaiah, Jesus, this one to come, can't just be a good man. He can't be a prophet like Isaiah. This is bigger than that. Jesus can't just be a philosopher. He can't be a holy man who has a few new ideas. No, he's mighty God. This is the prince of peace. In his famous book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says it this way, a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg. I don't know what that's about. but Or he would be the devil of hell. You must take your choice. Either this was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. 
See, Isaiah doesn't leave that open to us either. So as the season of Advent opens, we need to go back to the prophets and to see what they say. Isaiah, he sees the the northern kingdom, and it's now enslaved. He sees that the southern kingdom is coming into moral decay. He knows how this is going to end. Sometimes we feel that way about our own world. We see the brokenness. We see the moral decay in our own world, too. See, Isaiah sees that, but, but he dreams of something better. He's not just wishing for something better. He puts his hope in God for something better. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end, he prophesies. Look, uh, Look at more of what he said. This is 700 years again before Pentecost, before Christ, before the disciples would gather at Pentecost and they would prophesy in other languages. They would speak in tongues. They would start sharing God's word with people from all different nations. This is 700 years before this. We turn to Isaiah 49. The prophet says this, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob. And bring back those of Israel. It's too small a thing to just do this for the Jewish people. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles. That my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This brings up a Christian word that a lot of Christians get uncomfortable around. The word is evangelism. (laughs) You're going to be a light to the Gentiles. Oh, that's going to require evangelism. And, and for a lot of Christians, they say, well, evangelism, it doesn't work. People are creeped out when you do that. People are turned off. And, and I don't want to be that guy. And yet God <laughs> seems to think it does work. That when you share your faith, it will work. Isaiah doubles down. This is a few chapters later. This is in Isaiah 55. He says, surely you will summon nations you know not and nations you do not know. They'll come running to you to hear about your faith. No longer do we need to see missionaries overseas. We see this in America. God is bringing people to our shores. God's bringing them here. Back when I was uh, uh, working at the University of Texas as a college pastor, uh, my wife April and I, we helped lead ESL classes, English as a second language. And we were leading ESL classes because a lot of the doctoral students and master's students from overseas, maybe they knew a little English, but their spouses didn't, their husbands or their wives, uh, their children, like they didn't know English. And so they were brand new to America and brand new to English. And so we, we offered some ESL classes to, in the, for the most part, these spouses uh, and their kids. And over about a year, once we had started this, we had over 100 different people coming to our church to meet with our volunteers and to learn English. And of course, we shared Jesus with them. We, we ended up having baptisms, people that came to faith because of all this. And my wife, April, she started a mommy and me class because 
she was a stay-at-home mom, but she had a bunch of babies, and so she thought other people that have babies, they'll, they'll just all gather. And so she started in a small classroom at our campus church, and before long, there were like 40 people smooshed in this classroom with babies on their lap. It's just amazing. Most of these, these moms were uh, Korean or Chinese and Japanese, and they would just get to know each other and talk about life and, and, and learn a new language. See, God says nations will come running to you, and he's doing that. See, we've all met the weird guy with the pamphlets who knocks on your door. None of us like that guy, right? I mean, when the weird guy with the pamphlets who knocks on your door, knocks on your door, you just want to shut the door, right? I want to do that. I don't do that because I'm weird. I invite them in. <laughs> I'm ready to fix the whole thing. They, they, they bit off more than they can chew. They knocked on the wrong door. They got a different kind of religious zealot. They got a Jesus zealot. So come knock on my door and get more than you hope for. In most of my mission work, I've had to do a lot of apologizing for creepy guy with pamphlets. I have. You know, when it comes to evangelism, we all make excuses. I don't know enough. People, they're going to have tough questions. I don't know how to answer their questions. I'm not gifted for that sort of thing. But God doesn't ask you to answer all their questions. He doesn't expect you to have the answers. He doesn't ask you to have all the answers. God doesn't expect you to have a, a PhD in evangelism. God doesn't expect you to know the Bible backwards and forwards. God asks you for one thing. And he asks it of every Christian. And Peter writes about this in his letter to the church. He says, this is the one thing that God asked you to do. Nothing more. Just one thing. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you. Like, you don't even have to confront people. It's just when they ask you, to give the reason for the hope that you have, always be prepared to give that reason. You, you call it like in a way that's kind of like a testimony or something. No, just, just, just be prepared when they ask you about the hope you have, the hope of what God's going to do, what, what, why you follow Jesus, what, why do you go to your church. When they ask you about that, just Give the reason for it. That's all you have to do. Just tell them about the hope you have. It's that simple. That's it. Evangelism isn't a program. Evangelism isn't a list of propositions. It doesn't have to be complicated. It's helping out someone who's hurting. It's sitting down over a meal and listening about their life. It's being a friend. It's loving the unlovable. It's sharing your life with others. It's living life in such a beautiful way that you have the peace of God and you can invite others to be a part of it when they ask you about it. Your friends and neighbors will primarily learn about Jesus 
by getting to know you. That's the truth. And so here's the question for you. Because if they're noticing your life, then you're important. If you were going to give away your life, would anybody want it? If you were going to give away your marriage, how do you talk about your marriage? How do you treat your spouse? How does your spouse treat you? If you were going to give away your marriage, would anybody want it? If you were going to give away your family, if you were going to give away your job, would anybody want it? If, would, if you were going to give away your personality or how you talk to people or how angry you get, would anybody want it if you gave it away for free? Because what they're noticing is your life. So Peter says, this is the only thing required. This is the only thing required. And by the way, I didn't quite finish that verse. See, he says, be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. And then he says this at the very end. I left this part off. I want to put emphasis there. But do this with gentleness and respect. Because that's what Christians are known for in America, right? Gentleness. In respect. From this day forward, we will be known this way, right? We better be. We better be. Peter said this stuff. If you're Catholic, the first pope said this to you. Do this with gentleness and respect. At this time, we, this is Christmas Unwrapped, I want to unwrap our first gift for this series. And so I'm going to invite out my lovely assistant who's going to bring our first gift. And thank you, lovely assistant. If you would, would you open the gift for us? And let's see what we have. Oh, we have two books. We got a book for the kids. And we have, upside down, and we have a book for the adults. The book for kids, first off. These books are a ministry of the Lutheran Church that's been going on for decades. In fact, they had these books, the arch books, when I was a kid, and I remember reading them as a kid, and I thought they were really great, and they're still really great. In fact, this is one that I had as a kid. In fact, it's been so popular, they keep making them decades later. So what we have for you kids, as you leave worship today, your gift unwrapped, we're going to give you one of these arch books. Okay, pick one up. We have many different ones that tell different parts of the Christmas story. So one of you kids might get one, and then you know, your sibling might get a different one, and that's great. You can share them with each other. Kids, this is important to us. You need to know God's word, and this is God's word. This is the story of Jesus' birth in language that you can understand, in a way that you can understand. So we all need to be rooted in God's word during the season of Advent. And then for you adults, this is the case for Christmas. This book was written by a journalist for the Chicago Tribune. Lee Strobel wanted to investigate through archaeology, through evidence, through history, whether Christmas really happened. And so he's done that work. And so when it comes to sharing your faith and people might have questions, if you're looking for some answers to some questions about Christmas, this book might be helpful. Read it. See if it's helpful for you. If you have a friend that's interested in learning more about Christ, maybe this is a book that you Give away. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. So that gift will be given out to all you adults. Uh, for you married couples, if you want to take one and share it, that would be terrific. But this is our gift for you. 
And we're, again, we're inviting you back next week because we're going to have another gift for you in each and every week as we continue to tell the story of hope and peace and joy and love. And remember this, Isaiah is the first Christmas gospel. The first Christmas gospel. His family and his country are under threat. And yet Isaiah, even in the midst of this, he shows them a way out. He spreads hope. Even on your worst day, God is working for something better. The king, he put his hope in his military. He put his hope in politics. He put his hope in treaties. God says to him, if you would just ask me, I'll show you a hope that is eternal. And it starts with the baby. It starts with the manger. And it ends with a cross. Where we find out the reason he came is to forgive you, to restore you, and to give you eternal life. And that's the greatest gift of all. Let's pray.